context is chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. So, the warning is about being duplicitous, about behaving one way in certain settings and about uh, behaving a, a, way, a different way in your private personal life. So, Jesus is saying this, there is a direct link between your private personal life and your public life, that those two things should line up. This morning, we'll just, as introduction to this prayer, we'll look at three things. We'll look at the necessity of prayer, the approach to prayer, and the goal. The necessity of it, the approach to it, and the goal of it. So number one, Jesus is saying this, look at verse five. And when you do pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. But truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. God wants us all. He wants each of you to have your own personal, private prayer life. That is a part of your routine, the rhythm of your life. <clears throat> we, <clears throat> excuse me, we love gathering together. We love singing. We love social things. We know that <clears throat> even during our little meet and greet time, some of you just love to talk and eat and all those really fun things. And those are all really good things. But Jesus is saying, don't neglect your own personal, private prayer life. That is part of who you are supposed to be. The point that Jesus is making here is motivation. Jesus is saying that there is a place, and he uses the example of a, of a pantry-type room, a storage room where, no, where there aren't any windows and where nobody can see you where there is no accountability, where no one knows exactly what you're doing. Jesus says he wants that part of your life to be a regular, sustainable, fruitful part of your life where you are praying regularly to him. There's very little accountability involved. There's very little community involved. All of these good things we have in life, Jesus says there has to be another part of your life that's devoted to me. It's a private, personal prayer life. It's a key way to know if you're growing, if you're growing in your walk with the Lord, that you have this. The point is this, that Jesus wants to have a role in your thought life, in what you think about, in your private life. He wants to have a role in your future. When you think about your future, and your future makes you a little bit nervous, he wants to have a role with your money, with your anxiety, with your sexuality, with your secret ambitions, with how you spend your time. He wants to have a role in how you fit into this world. Jesus says, it's necessary that you have this personal, private prayer life. There's so much of our lives that are driven by just being public, being out there, all the different avenues and ways that our lives are public and we're out there. Is there a part of your life that's personal, that's private, that is about talking to Jesus? Jesus is saying this, 
in the context, the broader context, if you want to change the status quo, we talked about this last Sunday, if you want to change the status quo in your life, you must have a personal, private prayer life. We love, um, we love to sing, and we love worship songs, and all these really good things. In fact, I saw a, a report this week that, I think it was Hillsong, I think they've sold over 16 million songs, a church worship band, and that is amazing. And we, It's possible we might even sing some of their songs here, I'm not even sure. But my point is this. We love that kind of stuff. We're driven to that kind of stuff. Without a personal, private prayer life, you are slowly eroding and you are slowly dying. You're just playing a game. You're playing a type of Christianity that Jesus does not even talk about. So Jesus is very clearly saying that if you want to change your status quo, if you want your life to be growing and and thriving in a relationship with him, you must have a personal, private prayer life because we all slide and move away towards our own selfishness, to a lifestyle that is self-serving, to a lifestyle that promotes our own desires and agenda. This is what Jesus says. He says at the very end, when I read, the very end of verse 6, this, this hits directly towards how self-centered we can all be. He says this, and your father who, who sees you, who sees you and no one else sees you during your time of personal prayer, says there's a reward. You know what the reward is? It's more precious than anything. It's the presence of God himself. It's fellowship with God himself. It is the intimacy with almighty God himself. That is the reward that he promises to give you. And all the implications that go along with that. So number one, before we even get into what is called the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is pressing hard into us this revolutionary message that it's not that most of your life is that invisible time. We've probably all heard the example of an iceberg, right? Where most of the iceberg is underwater. Jesus is saying that your private personal prayer life will keep you alive. It's necessary. Number two, he goes on and talks about the approach. Your approach to God in this personal prayer life is based on a family relationship, not a business relationship. Your approach to God during your personal prayer life is based on a family relationship, not a business one. Here's what Jesus is saying. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And what happens is often is we, we slowly move into this business relationship with God. And it works itself out in something like this. If I do these certain things, if I go to church, if I have my quiet time, if I read my Bible, if I'm nice to people, if I forgive people and do these nice little things, then I expect God to answer my prayer. And what happens if he doesn't? The options are you get mad at God, you get bitter at God, or you get bitter at yourself and you've got to try harder and you try harder. And it's just this give and take. Jesus says over and over and over again, he uses this key word, 
And the key word he uses over and over again is the word father. Jesus says in the very beginning of his prayer, he says, pray like this, our father. And this is, this is something that we read and we don't quite understand the implications of what's actually happening here. It's more revolutionary than we think. If you look all throughout the Old Testament, God is never referred to as your father in a personal relationship context. I think it's seven times, very few t- number of times in the Old Testament where God is even referred to as your father. The Jewish people would never do that because God was holy and sacred and it, it, and it had an idea of being dishonoring to him. Jesus brings in a brand new approach and he's changing the whole attitude to how we pray. It's not a business relationship. It's not bartering with God. It's not coming to this agreement because we do certain things that we expect answers in return. Jesus teaches us to pray our Father. Here's what this means. One of the most important things that we can do as believers is try to think through and understand what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. Most of us here this morning have an understanding of that, but there is so much more to it than what first meets the eye. And one of the main things, one of the main implications of that is what the Bible refers to as adoption. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you are made righteous, you have a new position in Christ. And we are adopted into his family. We have a new status. We have a new identity. And that changes things dramatically. We so easily put an identity upon ourselves and we, or we try to create an identity and we, or we allow other people to do it. And it's very difficult to break out of that. I think I must have been 13 or 14 years old, and I, I, um, I really got into golf for a while. I had a, a golf membership where I paid $15 a month, and I could golf as much as I wanted to. I could walk to the golf course and play golf with my buddies. Well, one day we started golfing. This is up in Washington, and, and just a couple holes into playing golf, it starts raining really hard like it always does in Washington. And being a 13-year-old, I have no idea to this day how it started. But somebody threw mud. All right? And with two 13-year-old boys, it just became a full-on mud fight. And we're on, the, we're on a green, and we're running around, and just, just destroying things. And the, uh, the golf sheriff or whatever guy comes flying down in his golf cart. And, um, and here's, okay, this is so funny how things stick. There's two boys, my buddy and I, and he, he looks at us and he, he, looks at, he looks at us and says, him, pointing to me, Kelly, I would expect that from him, but not you. So he was this big old deal, like this one boy, he was like the really good, moral, righteous guy, and, but him, I, was the, I would expect something so bad as you destroying the golf, the green and all this stuff. But my point, I remember this thinking, Here's an authoritative person, the golf sheriff or whatever they are, how much authority they have. But I remember being, having a, like an adult man like yell at me and like, you're a loser, you're the bad person. You do these horrible things. And I did get in trouble quite a bit during my teenage years, but um, my point is this. It is so easy 
for labels to be put upon you. It is so easy to put a label on yourself or an identity. And one of the most important things that we can think through and try to apply to our lives as far as the gospel is understood is the idea of adoption, that you now belong to God, that you are part of his family, that you have all the rights and privileges as a natural-born child. My sister, it's um, my sister, when I... I call her my sister, but I guess in all technicalities of things, she is my half-sister. But when my, uh, when my mom and dad, <clears throat> my biological dad, married my mother, they adopted my sister, who had a, 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 my mom's first husband who passed away. And the idea of being adopted into a family it has, it's a, it's a change of status. Okay, so here, here's what I'm saying. And I, don't, I can use my own family. When my sister was adopted, in, in, adopted by my parents, she was now part of the family. There are still problems and still, still issues being worked out, but the, the legal position now is part of the family. And this, here's the point. All of us have struggles in our Christian life. But you are part of God's family. You have all the rights and privileges of being part of God's family. And what happens is, and here's where we begin to go astray, we begin to think about that as things, what can God, what can God do for me? How does this work out benefit for me? And, and what Jesus is saying here by saying, our Father, he's saying, no, you're missing it. There's so much more to this than you understand. When you are part of my family, you belong to the king. And here, listen, this is really interesting. Jesus does not begin the prayer by saying, our king. Does, does Jesus claim to be the king of the world? Yes, he does. He doesn't say, our Lord. He doesn't use all these hierarchy type words. <clears throat> he says, our father, which means you are part of the family of God. And you have a new status. And when you have a new status... You have a new attitude, a new approach. It's not a business relationship. It's not a give and take. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, referring to his father, even as I has loved you, so I love my children. In the same way that God loves his son Jesus, he loves us. And so our approach to God is completely different. You have access. You can talk to your father. There is um, one of the most beautiful and most fun and cool stages of life is when your children are like two to eight. And your kids think you're amazing. And then somewhere, I don't know, 11, 12, 13, like reality starts setting in. But, you know, when, when you're... For me, when my boys were little, they just, Dad, you can do this, right? You can surf 25-foot waves, right, Dad? You can do this, Dad. You can run. You're the, fa- you're the fast. You can throw harder than anyone else, right, Dad? You can do anything. Like, they just have this, this view of Dad that's like, it's just the coolest thing. And they even like this idea that they just want to be near you. And if you don't have children yet, and many of you don't yet, but it will open your eyes to an understanding and I, I do know this too, that some of us, 
you here don't have, you've had rough home life, so the idea of your father isn't the best. But there is a beauty in understanding this. There is a beauty in being close. Access. So the approach is God wants, there's nothing better than for a dad, or we can say parents, than when your children are near you. And that's what God wants. God just wants to be, God wants you to come and just be near him. It's not a business relationship. It is not because you've done something well today that you can come. What's been done well has already been done, and that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And so now you are part of his family. You have access. That's what you have. Adoption is an act of the father. Kids don't have a choice. It's the parents doing the work. God has done the work to bring you into his family. The same, the promise of love, the promise of commitment, the promise of sacrifice, the promise of acceptance is what Jesus is talking about when he says, Our Father. That is the promise to you. The goal of personal prayer is both outward and inward. And we'll look at that just briefly. Okay, so we have the necessity, we have the approach that God is our Father, that he adopts us into his family. And just briefly, a couple of the goals. Verse 10, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This is revolutionary, too, when we think about this. Let me just, let me say this. I've been doing just lots of reading the last few days and weeks, um, just thinking about prayer and stuff and the rhythm of my life. And um, several authors, and, and I can share more about who I've been reading later, but one author, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Bible called The Message, talked about a rhythm to praying. And he talks about Psalms 5 and Psalms 4 and how the idea of your morning prayer, the morning prayer, when you wake up in the morning, spending time in prayer should look something like this. It should be something along the lines of your kingdom come. When you wake up in the morning, and we're talking about the necessity of your personal prayer life and your approach as our Father, and what are you praying about? You're praying about your kingdom come. You have to know that when we unfold that, it is a revolutionary, radical, rebellious set of values that are completely different. They are the antithesis to the things of this world. Let me just give you one, just a couple of examples. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about loving your enemies. A revolutionary set of values when you love people that you don't get along with when you love people that are hard for you to get, get along with, that are irritable to you. And just goes on and on. That is the whole Sermon on the Mount. A different set of values. If you want to do something radical and you want your life to change, if you want to disrupt the status quo and you pray, thy kingdom come, it is an upside-down set of values. Values of the world, me first. Jesus says, I came to serve. 
came to seek and save the lost and to serve. You give your life for others. I've mentioned this before. Every single day, dozens of times throughout the day, you have the opportunity to say two things. My life for me or my life for you. Thy kingdom come. The values of that is my life for you. That will up, turn upside down your world. And if you want just more and more examples, Jesus talks about being salt and light. He talks about anger. He talks about sexuality. He talks about words. He talks about retaliation. All these things in the Sermon on the Mount that clearly distinguish a new set of values. Right? Lockwood talked about this a few weeks ago in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. These just radical, life-changing, unique, different set of values will change your world. Here's one way to think about it. It will set the world right. When you pray, thy kingdom come, it will put the world back in the order that God intended. The world is fractured and broken and people are hurting. Thy kingdom come is healing because you're able to say, my life for you instead of my life for me. In the evening time, when you have personal prayer time in the evening time, your prayer should be, your will be done. Thy will be done. Listen, your body, when it's nighttime, it's just going to be tired and it will fall asleep. But does your soul have rest? Don't raise your hand, but many of us here this morning go to bed each night with anxiety and stress and hurt and bitterness and fear and all these things that weigh us down. And what Jesus is teaching us something just revolutionary here, that you should go to bed each night saying, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. How does it show up? It's one quick case study, and I'll wrap up with this. One of the things that's really interesting when we, when we think about thy will be done, don't think of Jesus as Santa Claus, right? And I just, I, I, I kind of cringe even thinking about that. But please, we, we want to press into what Jesus is really like. And we really try to, if we want to just be really easy and shallow and just cruise, then we can just make Jesus Santa Claus and say, Jesus, give me. What do I get out of Jesus? And you turn Christianity into something that's not real into what it never intended to be, and we're deceiving ourselves. Thy will be done will revolutionize. And here's, here's what, we, what we can see. When, Paul, when the Apostle Paul wrote all of his letters, or most of his letters, he almost always begins the letters with prayer. And one of the things that's really interesting that you'll notice when you read his prayers about the churches that he's writing to, he never says things like, I'm praying for healing. Although that's okay. He never says, I pray that so-and-so will financially be prosperous. Although that's okay too to pray things like that. You know what he prays for? 
He prays for spiritual insight, for understanding. That we would put God back at the center of our lives. That is, thy will be done is praying this. God's not what I can get from you, but putting you back at the center. Think about for a minute, just if, if the moon were to lose its place in, in its orbit and what happens or the sun or one of the planets and things get altered. Things crash and burn. Thy will be done is saying, God, I want to go to sleep right now with you at the center of my life. I don't understand all these things going on in my life. I'm confused. I'm hurting. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to understand that you're in control. And I'm going to go to sleep at night trusting you. Here's what I do know. People are almost always carrying more burdens than they let out. Everyone has their own personal private life and almost everyone I know has struggles. And what I want to say to you this morning is that if we're going to pray like Jesus, there has to be a part of your day and I'm telling you the rhythm of your life should be some time in the morning and some time in the evening when you're going to sleep. Or you can pray in the morning, your kingdom come. I'm going to live my life according to a new set of values that you give us, Jesus. And when you go to bed, I'm going to say your will be done. Even if it doesn't make sense, but you're going to trust. When we begin to think about our lives and praying like Jesus, Talk to Jesus, talk to your Heavenly Father as if He is your Father. A regular voice. It's really funny. Here's one of the things that's bad about churches. As you get around churches sometimes, and you're around more and more and more and more, we start changing the way you talk. So just, just talk to God as if you're talking to your Father. And share the burdens on your heart. And pray yourself. Persevere in praying to yourself, thy will be done. During the confusing times of life, the unstable times of life, the uncertainties of life, thy will be done. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would do a new work in our lives. That we would learn to pray as the example that you give us. Father, I pray that we would through the power of your spirit, be willing to break free from tradition, from routine, from how we've done things in the past, and that we would be able to, by the leading of your spirit, say, I want to pray like you, Jesus. I want to understand and see you as my Father, my loving Heavenly Father. And that we want to take the risk to say, your kingdom come and live the way you want us to live. And Father, I pray that as we go to bed, as each person goes to sleep tonight, that they could pray, Thy will be done. That they would have the rest and the peace. They would have an understanding that you are sovereign, you are control, and you are loving. We thank you for giving us your son Jesus. In your name, amen.